Hey everybody, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. This episode we are doing Brave New World by Aldous Huxley and it is an interesting read to say the least. I can probably say I won't ever read it again, but it was fun while it lasted, I guess. You'll understand when we get a little further into it. So there will be two episodes and the first will cover chapters one through six and major characters and context. And then the second episode will cover chapters seven through 18 and go over themes. Context and overview. Aldous Huxley was born in Surrey, England in 1894, educated at Oxford and died in LA in 1963. He wrote nearly 50 books his most popular being The Island, which was the last book he ever wrote, and Brave New World, obviously. Brave New World was written in 1931, published in 1932. The title of the book comes from Shakespeare. So in The Tempest, Miranda is giving a speech and she says, oh, brave new world. And that's where the title of this book comes from. And you'll hear more about that in the book. So he wrote Brave New World partially in a satirical response to the utopian novels that were being written at the time, specifically H.G. Wells. And Huxley began by writing a parody of H.G. Wells' utopian novels, but he got caught up in his great idea and just sort of went with it. And that's where Brave New World came from. Huxley's utopia is not optimistic like the others of that time. He wanted to show a sort of frightening version of what the future could be. He was obviously heavily influenced by the Depression in the UK in the 1930s, which is why stability is a huge theme throughout Brave New World. It's sort of like what they strive for. They just want stability instead of, you know, striving for happiness or all of that. It's just like being stable. And he was heavily influenced by his dislike towards American culture. He thought Americans were too sexual and selfish. They focused on youth culture and fake happiness. He didn't like that. Like I said, it's not a like optimistic utopia. And this society in Brave New World is meant to bring complete happiness. And if that's not achievable for some reason, they take a drug called Soma, which is basically a mix of an antidepressant and a hallucinogenic. And they use that to sort of like numb any bad feelings that they have. And this makes it easy for the government and the rulers to bring complete happiness is what they call it. Although it is kind of just like stabilization. A few things to note before we start. So in this world state, they sort of worship Henry Ford. So Henry Ford is the man who brought us the Ford T model and also the assembly line. He's responsible for popularizing the assembly line. And this world state in Brave New World is built on the principles of Henry Ford's assembly line. So mass production, predictability, like the assembly line is how they create humans. So instead of saying, oh my God, 
they say, oh, my Ford. Instead of doing the sign of the cross on themselves, they do a T for the Ford T model. Basically, they give credit to Ford as if he were God. In fact, God is not even a word that they use. They just, they don't even know about God anymore in this world. So they also use the term AF when referring to years. So that it means like the year of Ford 632 as opposed to 1908 AD, right? They say AF, which means the year of Ford. And they started counting up from the year that the Model T was invented. Yeah, basically they just worship Henry Ford and the Ford T model and the assembly line. It's what their whole system is built on. So sometimes they say our Freud instead of Ford. And a lot of people in the society, most I would say, don't even know that Freud and Ford are different people. But they say our Freud instead of Ford because of Freud's work in psychoanalytics, especially his method of classic conditioning, which is what they use to condition fetuses to be certain castes. And we'll get into that in a second. They also like Freud because his belief that sexual activity is essential to happiness. And so along with Henry Ford, they also worship Sigmund Freud. And a lot of people, like I said, think that they're the same person. Okay, major characters. The first is Bernard Marx. He is an alpha plus, but he is short for being an alpha. And so he has an inferiority complex. He's physically inferior. He's very insecure, but he is a psychologist. He specializes in sleep hypnosis trainings. He spends a lot of time alone, has a bad reputation, feels like an outcast, the next character is Lennon a crown. She is a beta. 30% of the population of women are kept fertile, and she is part of that. She's not sterilized as an embryo. She works at the DHC center. She is considered to be very pretty and very popular. She seems very content with her life until that all goes to crap when she goes to the savage reservation the next character is john the savage he is the son of a woman named linda and he was born on savage reservation he was an outcast there because he has white skin blonde hair and blue eyes he speaks english and the indigenous languages he reads shakespeare he resents soma believes in god believes in self-sacrifice and sort of rejects this society that he's thrown into. The next character is Linda. She is a beta. She's John's mother and she visits the Savage Reservation and gets left there on accident and becomes pregnant, has a child, and grows old, which is something that doesn't happen in like the civilized societies. People don't grow old. Okay, those are the only characters I'm going to go over. There's more, but that's it for now. Okay, so the themes are, I'm not going to go over them now. I'm just going to mention them. They are technology and control, individuality versus society, consumerism, and happiness versus stability. And at the end of the podcast, we'll go over all of the themes in depth. Chapter one. This story takes place in London. And in this world, they have a motto that says community, identity, stability. So the story starts with a group of students on a tour of 
what is called the Central London Hatchery and Conditioning Center. They are in the fertilizing room, and they are given being given the tour by the DHC, the Director of Hatcheries and Conditioning, and he is called DHC. He's also called Director, and his name, his first name is Thomas. The students are in the fertility room, and in this room there are male and female gametes and incubators. In this world, they no longer produce living offspring. They use what is called the Bakanovsky process, where they surgically remove ovaries and fertilize them in tubes. This process tends to weaken embryos, but allows them to grow more embryos from a single ovary. So they take an embryo and they split it into up to 96 individual embryos. The limit is 96, and the average they get from each embryo is 72. The director explains to the students why they do this. He says the Bakanovsky process is one of the major instruments of social stability. So their business is to stabilize the population. They also have another technique called PodSnaps technique, which immensely accelerates the process of ripening On page 8, it says they can make sure of at least 150 mature eggs within two years. So they speed up the process of egg ripening, and this allows for an average production rate of 11,000 siblings from one single ovary. So in one of the rooms, they meet Henry Foster, who works at the conditioning center. He explains more to them about the fertilizing plant and the processes that they use. And it tells them that fertilizing plants are found all over the world. And in Singapore and Mombasa, the fertilizing plants have been more successful than the European fertilizing plants. And they have produced upwards of 17,000 siblings from just one ovary. That's their record. And Henry Foster says that he intends to beat this record. Okay, so the students are brought into a red room. This is where the embryos are kept. These are the rooms where techs influence the development of the embryos. So they do a lot of conditioning and a lot of different things to different embryos based on the class that they are going to be put into. They're called casts. And the overall casts are alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon. So gamma deltas, epsilons are the lower class, and those are the casts that go through the Bakanovsky method. Alphas and betas are not split into 96 different embryos. They are kept individual, and they go through a different process. So one of the things that they do is that they only allow 30% of females to be fertile, and the other are kept infertile. On page 13, it says... We allow as many as 30% of female embryos to develop normally. The others get a dose of the male sex hormone every 24 meters for the rest of the course. And this results in them being what they call free martins, which they are structurally quite normal as women, but they are sterile. Like I said, they choose the destinies of these embryos based on their social standing and their caste and give them jobs while the embryos are developing some of them have oxygen withheld from them some of them are subjected to alcohol to stunt their development on page 14 
The DHC says, hasn't it ever occurred to you that an Epsilon embryo must have an Epsilon environment as well as an Epsilon heredity? So Epsilons being the lowest class are subjected to the most amount of conditioning. All the embryos are subjected to certain temperatures so that they are conditioned to be in certain climates wherever they're going to end up working. Conditioning's end goal is to help people like what they do for work. On page 16, it says, that is a secret of happiness and virtue, liking what you've got to do. All conditioning aims at that, making people like their unescapable social destiny. Embryos are also inoculated against diseases. They are subjected to intellectual conditioning later on in the Bakanovsky process. So in this room, the tour group meets a woman named Lenina Crown. She's a hatchery worker in the fertilizing center. The narrator tells us that she is uncommonly pretty, even though she has lupus and purple eyes. She's very popular and sexually desired by most, if not all men. And she's a beta. So Lenina's job is to immunize the fetuses who are going to live in tropical climates so that they won't contract diseases like typhoid. During the tour, Henry and Lenina are flirtatious with each other and confirm their date for that afternoon in front of everyone, and this isn't considered weird. So the tour group starts to head to the Alpha Plus room, but they are out of time, and so the director takes them instead to the nurseries because he wants them to see how the young children are conditioned even after they are decanted. Chapter 2. The group enters what is called infant nurseries, neo-pavilion conditioning rooms. There are babies of all races and nationalities. They're placed on the floor in front of a lot of books and beautiful flowers. So the kids start playing with the flowers, start playing with the books, and then after a few minutes, there's a button pushed and all the babies are shocked. Like with an electric shock from the ground, they all start crying and screaming. And then They turn it off, calm the babies down, and again place them in front of the books and the flowers. But this time, none of the babies touch the books or flowers because they're afraid of them. They think that that's what gave them the electric shock. And one of the students in the tour has a question. On page 22, he says, the narrator says, though he could see quite well why you couldn't have lower caste wasting the community's time over books and that there was always the risk of reading something which might undesirably decondition one of their reflexes, he couldn't understand why they didn't want the lower castes to think that flowers were beautiful. And the DHC says that loving books and nature is considered a waste of time. He says on 23, a love of nature keeps no factories busy. Like I said, humans are not born anymore. They are decanted. So they come from a tube rather than from a mother. In fact, no one has a father or a mother. And those words are like gross curse words. People get really uncomfortable and weird if you say those words. The director tells them a story of little Reuben, who spoke only Polish but learned English by listening to a program while he was sleeping. And this is what began hypnotic sleep conditioning. So every child through their childhood is conditioned through hypnotic sleep conditioning and they are brought up in state conditioning centers. And on page 29, it says, till at last the child's mind 
is these suggestions and the sum of the suggestions is the child's mind and not the child's mind only, the adult's mind too, all his life long, the mind that judges and desires and decides made up of these suggestions, but all these suggestions are our suggestions, suggestions from the state. So you'll see throughout the book, there's a lot of phrases that adults use daily that come from their hypnotic sleep training. It's like, indoctrination of children into the society. Children are also conditioned to not like other children from different castes. They all have a different color to wear, like alphas wear gray, epsilons wear black, gammas wear green. Every caste is conditioned to not only like what they do, but not want to be any other caste. So like betas are conditioned to believe like, I'm a beta and I work hard but alphas work much harder than me and I don't want to be an alpha because I don't want to work as hard as they do. Chapter three. So we're still on the tour. The students are with the director. They are now outside observing the older children as they play. They are playing a game called Centrifugal Bumble Puppy. Most of the games that these children play are sexual and weird. They actually encourage like child sex play in this society. Everything has to have a purpose. So these children are playing this game and the students are observing them and the director, he's like, I have something to tell you guys about history and you're not going to believe it. On page 32, it says, he let out the amazing truth for a very long period before the time of our Ford and even for some generations afterwards, erotic play between children had been regarded as abnormal. There was a roar of laughter to this and not only abnormal, actually immoral, and had therefore been rigorously suppressed. The children are astonished. They can't believe this. And the DHC says, even adolescents like yourselves were not allowed to engage in sexual activity. In most cases, the DHC says they weren't allowed until they were over 20 years old. The children are astonished by this. They ask, you know, what was the result of this? What happened? And the DHC said the results were terrible. So basically, like I say, sexual play, sexual activity is encouraged in this world. In fact, if a child resists this sort of behavior, they are taken to the nurse and like a psychologist. Anyway, very, very weird, very strange. So the group is, you know, listening to the DHC tell them this astonishing truth and they are joined by a man named Mustafa Mond. He's a world controller. He's one of 10. And he is currently the resident controller of Western Europe. The DHC is like honored, has him join the children. And the rest of this chapter is three different storylines and they kind of switch. They switch back and forth. So it's kind of hard to follow in a podcast. So I'm just going to do one storyline at a time. So The first storyline is Mustafa Mond and the DHC with the students. The second is Lenina Crown, who we met, and she is in the locker room talking to her friend Fanny. And the third is Bernard Marx, who I'll discuss when we get there. And he's having a conversation with two men in the locker room. So the first storyline is Lenina Crown. A lot of people have the same last name since there are only 10,000 names for 2,000 million inhabitants. So Lenina Crown is talking to her friend Fanny Crown 
and Lenina is in the locker room. She takes a bath. She dusts herself with talcum powder and has what they call a vacuum massage. Don't know what it is. They never specify, but sounds interesting. And Fanny and Lenina are friends. They have lockers close to each other and they start talking. Lenina is getting ready for her night to go out with Henry Ford. She has been seeing Henry Ford for four months. So in this world, monogamy is frowned upon. You don't have long-term relationships with one person. You're supposed to go out with different people every single night. And Fanny is concerned that Lenina has been going out with only one man for four months. She tells Lenina that she needs to be more promiscuous. Fanny says she hasn't been feeling well and that her doctor is considering giving her what is called a pregnancy substitute. Lenina thinks that she's too young for this. And I'm a little confused as to what a pregnancy substitute is, but from what I understand, it mimics a pregnancy in order to correct the female's hormones in hopes that she will want to have more and more sex with lots of different people. Fanny is only 19 and Lenina is concerned about her getting a pregnancy substitute because most women don't get that until they're 21. Okay, so Fanny is, again, disapproving of Lenina only being with one man. She says, you know, you can still go out with Henry Foster. You just need to have other boys, too. And she points out that Henry has a lot of other girls. Lenina knows this, but says that she sometimes gets tired of being so promiscuous. Fanny sympathizes with this, but she says, like, you have to make an effort. And Lenina tells Fanny that she's been thinking of going out with a man named Bernard Marx. Fanny objects to this because Bernard has a bad reputation, mostly because he's an alpha, but he's small for being an alpha. So people think that there was alcohol put into his embryo by accident. So he has a bad reputation, basically. He invited Lenina to what is called the Savage Reservation in North America, and she wants to go with him. And she doesn't care about his reputation. Fanny doesn't understand why she wants to go with him. But Lenina plans on accepting his invitation. She gets all ready for her date and leaves to go meet Henry Foster. The other storyline is Bernard Marks. So Bernard is in the locker room with some other men. He overhears a conversation between Henry Foster and the assistant predestinator. And he's disgusted by how Henry Foster is talking about women. Bernard equates the way that men talk about women. He thinks it's like they're being treated like meat. He hears Henry Foster talking about Lenina and he calls her pneumatic, which literally means filled with air. But it's used to describe girls positively in this world. And Henry insists to the assistant, the man that he's talking to, that he should try Lenina. So he's encouraging him to sleep with Lenina. And the assistant says, you know, Fanny is also a nice girl, but she's not nearly as pneumatic as Lenina. So they're having this conversation and the assistant notices Bernard, remarks that he looks glum, and Henry suggests that they bait him. And they offer him a soma, which, like I told you, is the drug that's half antidepressant, half hallucinogenic, which they all take anytime they're feeling a tiny bit low or uncomfortable. 
And Bernard refuses angrily because he doesn't like Soma and he leaves. <sighs> okay, the last storyline, like I said, these are happening all at the same time. The last one is the conversation between the world controller, the director, and the students, right, who are doing the tour. Mustafa Mond, the world controller, is telling the students about how life used to be. There was love, uncontrolled passion. There was also sadness. There were families and mothers. And he said this all led to instability. On page 36, he says, and do you know what a home was? They shake their heads. And he says, our Freud had been the first to reveal the appalling dangers of family life. The world was full of fathers was therefore full of misery, full of mothers, therefore of every kind of perversion, from sadism to chastity, full of brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, full of madness and suicide. Men are conditioned not to have these emotions anymore, and the students don't even know what monogamy and romance are because of their conditioning. On page 40 it says, but everyone belongs to everyone else. The students nodded, emphatically agreeing with a statement which was um, it says, which upwards of 62,000 repetitions in the dark had made them accept. So this is one of the hypnotic sleep conditionings. So they accept this. Everyone belongs to everyone else, not merely as true, but as self-evident, utterly indisputable. The controller says that in order for a civilization to work, there has to be stability. He explains the history behind their current system of control. He talks about democracy, how it didn't work. He says that there was a nine years war in AF-141, which led to a lot of bombing, destruction, and death. It also led to the great economic collapse. They had a choice between stability and destruction. Books were suppressed, museums and monuments were destroyed. Ford's first T model was chosen as the opening of a new era, and Mustafa Mond explains Christianity, hypocrisy, alcohol abuse, drug use, and then he talks about Soma, and that it was created to produce the effects of Christianity and alcohol without the negative consequences. On page 55, he says, old men in the bad days used to renounce, retire, take to religion, spend their time reading, thinking, thinking. This is an absurd thought to them. And he says, but now such is progress. The old men work. The old men copulate. The old men have no time, no leisure for pleasure, not a moment to sit and think. So that's what Mustafa Mond tells them all. He goes through, you know, all the things of the past, how it didn't work, why it's better now, what makes it different. So chapter four, there are two parts in this chapter. Part one is very short. It just shows Lenina visiting Bernard to accept his offer to go visit the Savage Reservations with him in New Mexico. She does this in public in front of a lot of other people, and this embarrasses Bernard, but she she doesn't understand. She's like, why would we go talk privately? Why does it matter? And tells him, yes, we'll go, and then leaves and goes to meet Henry, and they take a helicopter ride over London. Henry drives the helicopter. They all, like, drive their own helicopters, basically. Okay, part two of this chapter shows Bernard. He is feeling insecure about his looks. He feels inferior because he's short. 
And on page 65, it says, the mockery made him feel like an outsider. And feeling an outsider, he behaved like one, which increased the prejudice against him and intensified the contempt and hostility aroused by his physical defects. He does have one friend. His name is Helmholtz Watson. He's a powerfully built man, also an alpha plus like Bernard. He's a lecturer at the College of Emotional Engineering. He is an emotional engineer and also a writer who comes up with propaganda. The two men are friends because they both have something that makes them feel inferior to other people, makes them individual, basically. Bernard is an alpha plus who is smaller than everyone else. And Helmholtz is, he's, he just knows too much. He's too smart and his brain is too smart to be part of this society. He like needs individuality, but he doesn't know what that is or how to get it. So anyway, Bernard visits with Helmholtz because, like I said, they understand each other. On page 67, it says, that which made Helmholtz so uncomfortably aware of being himself and all alone was too much ability. What the two men shared was the knowledge that they were individuals. Bernard talks about how he wishes women didn't reject him. And Helmholtz has been, he's like, I've been rejecting women and freeing up my time. They go to Bernard's room. Helmholtz expresses his feelings and his emotions. He feels like he has a greater work to do, but he doesn't know what it is or how to do it. On page 69, he says, I'm thinking of a feeling I sometimes get, a feeling that I've got something important to say and the power to say it. Only I don't know what it is, and I can't make any use of that power. Okay, chapter five. There are two parts in chapter five. So part one, Lenina and Henry are at the golf obstacle course. I don't really know what that means, but they're finishing up a game. The lower casts leave the golf course first, and as they leave, their main form of transportation is flight, these like personal helicopters. They pass over a crematorium. Henry explains that there are things to catch the phosphorus from the burning bodies. On page 73, he says, Fine to think we can go on being socially useful even after we're dead. We make plants grow. Lenina expresses her displeasure at the fact that alphas and betas are the same physically as gammas, deltas, and epsilons. She has a flashback to the time when she was a girl and she woke up and overheard the sleep conditioning, like hypnosis thing, telling her that even epsilons are useful. And as they fly over the crematorium, they wonder about the dead. They acknowledge that everybody in this life is happy now. They both say everybody's happy now, which is another sleep conditioning hypnosis thing that they've gone through in childhood. They go back to Henry's place, they eat and take a soma. It says on 77, swallowing half an hour before closing time, that second dose of soma had raised a quite impenetrable wall between the actual universe and their minds. They listen to a band called Calvin Stopes and the 16 Saxophones. And as they move on to a more intimate part of their meeting, Lenina runs through her contraceptive training. So they don't want these fertile women getting pregnant and they have a very extensive birth control process that they have to do every time they're about to have sex. Okay, part two. On alternate Thursdays, Bernard has solidarity service days. He's running late 
and he sits next to a woman named Morgana Rothschild. He admits to her that he was very busy, not doing something that people normally do, so he's embarrassed. Okay, so this solidarity service is similar to a church service. They sing hymns, and they all take a soma and repeat, I drink to my annihilation 12 times. They sing the first solidarity hymn and take another soma. They repeat this another two times with different hymns. This ritual is so strange, but the soma doesn't seem to work for Bernard, who keeps noticing Morgana's unibrow, and he hates it. And one by one, they start proclaiming to hear the greater being. Bernard joins in. He doesn't actually hear anything. He's just kind of following the crowd. On page 84, it says, feeling that it was time for him to do something, Bernard also jumped up and shouted, I hear him, he's coming, but it wasn't true. He heard nothing, and for him, nobody was coming, nobody in spite of the music, in spite of the mounting excitement. So the group gets more and more sensational and sensual until the very end, and instead of feeling wonderful and in solidarity, Bernard feels alone as ever. So (laughs) forget what I said about a church service. It was kind of a joke because this ceremony ends in an orgy and Bernard feels extremely isolated because he doesn't enjoy it. But yes, basically they're in a group having a sexual orgy. End of chapter five. Chapter six, there are three parts in this chapter. Okay, part one. Lenina is becoming nervous about her trip with Bernard to the Savage Reservation, and she considers canceling it to go on a trip with another man because she doesn't really like Bernard's tendency to be alone. On page 88, it says, For what was there that one could do in private, apart, of course, from going to bed, but one couldn't do that all the time? Yes, what was there? Precious little. She doesn't understand why he would be alone, why he would want to, and what he would do alone. She reflects on the previous trips she's been on with men. She hated both of them, and she's excited to go do something different. So Lenina and Bernard go out together. Bernard wanted to avoid the crowd, but Lenina didn't, and so they flew to Amsterdam to see the semi-demi-finals of the Women's Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. When they leave, they're in a storm. Lennon is afraid, but Bernard is attracted to the storm. It makes him feel like an individual. On page 90, it says, It makes me feel as though, as though I were me, if you see what I mean. More my own, not so completely a part of something else. Not just a cell in this social body. Lenina gets upset. She starts advocating for their social system. She says on 91, I am free, free to have the most wonderful time. Everybody's happy nowadays. Bernard offers the idea of being happy and free in one's own way. He says on 91, but wouldn't you like to be free and to be happy in some other way, Lenina? In your own way, for example, not in everybody else's way. Lenina is uncomfortable with this situation, so she tries to convince him to take a soma. He won't. They go back to his place, they have intercourse, and they meet again the next day, and Bernard expresses regret for sleeping together after the first date. 
On 94, it says, And that's why we went to bed yesterday like infants instead of being adults and waiting. And he says he wants to feel passion and romance. And this gives Lennon anxiety. Like she thinks, you know, I must not be beautiful enough because he's feeling regret. She blames it on her appearance. Okay, part two. Bernard visits the director to get permission to visit the Savage Reservation. The director's surprised. He tells Bernard about the time that he went to New Mexico to see the Savages. So the director, the DHC, like I said, his name is Thomas. He went to the reservation in New Mexico and he went with a woman who had yellow hair. There was a storm. She went out alone. She got lost and they looked for her but couldn't ever find her. He got injured turned around thinking maybe she, you know, went back to their house. She wasn't there. And he ended up leaving the reservation and never finding her. And he expresses some sadness, but then he gets defensive about it and starts critiquing Bernard about how he acts outside of work, goes against the norms. He says on 98, alphas are so conditioned that they do not have to be infantile in their emotional behavior, But that is all the more reason for their making a special effort to conform. It is their duty to be infantile, even against their inclination. The director tells Bernard, you know, basically you're on thin ice. Stop being an individual. And he threatens to have Bernard transferred to Iceland, which is not something Bernard wants. It's like very isolated place. But he is happy about the idea of being an individual. He goes back after his meeting and meets with Helmholtz and tells him all of this. He doesn't actually think that the director would ever send him to Iceland. All right, part three. Lenina and Bernard travel to New Mexico. They fly for six hours and stay the night in Santa Fe. You know, they're in a comfortable hotel. And Bernard warns Lenina that the reservation won't have any of these luxuries. She's like, I can take it. So they leave to get permission to visit the reservation. And someone teaches them about the reservation as they wait in the office. They say it's 560,000 square kilometers. There are four sub-reservations. All of them are surrounded by high-tension wire fences And in the middle of this information session, Bernard remembers that he forgot to turn off a cologne sink and he gets stressed about it. And the rest of the time, he's just trying to get out of there so he can call his friend to go turn it off because it will cost him a ton of money if it stays on the whole time. Lenina takes a Soma so she can focus better because she's feeling anxiety. They learn that the children are still born, not decanted on reservations. And if you are born, you cannot leave. It says on 102, those I repeat who are born on the reservation are destined to die there. All Bernard can focus on, like I said, is how much he's going to have to pay for the sink running. And the person says that the natives have no communication with the outside world. They still get married. They have families, Christianity and ancestor worship. They speak in extinct languages. They have diseases and they live around ferocious animals. After this instructional meeting that they have, Bernard rushes to the phone, calls Helmholtz, has him turn the sink off, and Helmholtz tells Bernard on the phone that the director is looking for somebody to replace him, to replace Bernard, and this frightens Bernard. He kind of liked the idea of going to Iceland when the threat was empty, but now that the threat is real, he's stressed about it. It says on 104, often in the past he had wondered what it would be like to be subjected to some great 
trial, some pain, some persecution. He had even longed for affliction. But now that it looked as though the threats were really to be fulfilled, Bernard was appalled. So he's super stressed about that. A reservation guard picks them up for the tour and they get flown to Malapai, I think is how you say it. They reach a green rest house with a native who is supposed to take them to a dance and the guard leaves them reassuring them that the savages aren't dangerous because they have experience with gas bombs. What he means is that the natives know that if they harm a visitor they will be gas bombed. Okay guys that is the end of episode one. In episode two we cover chapters seven through 18 so be sure to go check that out. We also go over all of the major themes so you definitely don't want to miss it. Go follow Brief Podcast on Instagram so that you know when new books come out and leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on so that people know how good we are.